Welcome to the Terawatt Space Podcast. This is Aravind. In this podcast, I speak to entrepreneurs, innovators, and thought leaders in an attempt to demystify Earth observation, satellite data, and all its applications. In this episode, I'm speaking with Awais Ahmed, co-founder and CEO of Pixel, a space tech startup founded in India with offices in the US that is launching a constellation of Earth observation satellites collecting hyperspectral imagery. I've tracked Pixel with two lenses over the years, one with my consultant hat on, analyzing how the startup will position itself and grow in the EU market, and second with my India hat on, looking at how Waze and his team based in India are building India's first commercial EO satellite company. In this episode, we discuss Pixel's founding journey, what they bring to the EO market, their strategy, how easy it is to use hyperspectral data, early adopters and key use cases, the investment from Accenture, how to grow the adoption of EO, and more. And now I bring you Awais Ahmed. Hi Awais, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey Erwin, nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. So let's get started. The first question that I usually start with is to ask guests to describe their story. And yeah, you're going to have an interesting story, I'm assuming. So what's your story and how did you end up doing what you're doing now? Like most of us, as we were growing up, I loved and adored space. I, I specifically remember this encyclopedia that my dad had gotten me about space and reading about the, the Voyager golden record and just uh, the other missions that were there always fascinated me that space is where I want to be and where I want to work in. Now that has evolved in different ways from wanting to be an astronaut to then an astronomer to then an astrophysicist to now now being a space entrepreneur. But that 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 love for space has always continued to be there. Um, and I think one of the critical moments I remember was in 10th grade where uh, our school got access to a telescope to look at the transit of Venus, which was going to happen for the last time this century. Um, and, and that that all I think cemented that that love there. So what we're doing at Pixel essentially stems from that is that space is space is awesome, right? Space is hard, people say, but space is also awesome. Um, but then things really took shape when I joined college in India. I was uh, pursuing my uh, uh, masters in mathematics uh, at Bits Pilani in Rajasthan. So it's middle of a desert, not a lot of things to do outside of the campus. So people had to figure out what to do in the campus. Um, the first thing that I did was there was a student satellite team that was working with the Indian Space Research Organization, the scientists at ISRO, uh, and they were teaching us how to actually build a satellite uh, that they would launch under the aegis of the student satellite program for free. Um, so I learned how to build an imaging satellite, which was uh, something that was being designed and being prototyped and tested. And then I happened to stumble into the room of uh, one of my seniors in college who was uh, writing something about the Hyperloop on his whiteboard. We got to talking and then um, I became the engineering lead for the Hyperloop India team. Um, the reason why we participated in the SpaceX competition which we ended up participating in was because we thought it would give us a chance to meet Elon um, who <laughs> um, you know, has been an inspiration for a lot of space enthusiasts since quite a few years. Um, we got through the design stages and then we had to manufacture this pod. So essentially when we took this Hyperloop pod to the SpaceX HQ in Los Angeles, it was sort of the very same things that you need to learn while building rockets or satellites. You need to figure out how to build something that will operate in harsh conditions and, and the engineering and how to do that team. So um, very steep learning curve. Uh, while we were in, in SpaceX, they took us on a tour of the SpaceX factory. And uh, they were building those Merlin engines in there. They were testing those there. Um, um, they were... Uh, there was the Falcon 9 booster uh, that they keep in front of their uh, headquarters as well, which was the one that had landed for the first time ever from space. Um, and, and 27th of August 2017, I remember the date is, is when it crystallized in my mind that 
I want to work in space for the rest of my life one way or the other um, now working in SpaceX or NASA was not a option for me then because it required you to be either a citizen or a resident in the US from ITA restrictions um and isro uh, uh, was something that took a lot of time to get to a point where you could actually take concrete decisions so i decided you know let's see if we can do something on our own um and uh, one of those things while diving deep into space was you know there were these companies that were coming up in in north america in europe that were doing satellite imagery analytics but there were very few in in asia pacific region so we said why don't we start with the analysis of existing sources of data and that's when the realization hit you know this data is great but uh, this doesn't really have the level of detail you require uh, at this day and date so there's a possibility of launching a better kind of satellite a hyperspectral satellite that we thought would be the next frontier for this that would that would not replace what was there i mean those are still definitely useful but would add to a lot of more use cases that you can see from from these um and when we realized that there was no one else that was doing it commercially and even today there's the same case no one still is doing it commercially we said let's let's build and uh, deploy the constellation of satellites so as i was thinking about this Uh, my co-founder Shetesh and I we used to play uh, FIFA together in the in the dorm rooms, uh, and that's when we uh, that's when I told him that hey I'm thinking about this, and then we you know uh, dive deeper and started executing on that. So I think that that was our story of, of where we came to be. Um, to sum it up, the the focus is we want to build hyperspectral satellites and hyperspectral data solutions, just because uh, not because we want to add one more Earth observation constellation, but because we think that's a genuine gap in Earth observation that uh, is needed. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of how I refer to companies now is, oh, do we really need one more Earth observation company? But usually there is a reason, you know, there is either technical, economic, strategic. There's usually some one reason or the other. Um, I was curious because you mentioned you have an interest in space and space exploration per se. How did you decide to compromise and start an Earth observation company? Because wasn't it a compromise? Because you know you don't get to do anything that you love because you're just going to be looking down on Earth, which is you know which is exciting in its own ways. But that's that's not what you were thinking. Yeah, no, I think look, there has to be a balance, right, between what you need right now from a human civilization perspective for the Earth and what you need. to push the boundaries of to ensure that the human civilization moves forward and there's a fine balance ensuring that there's progress but that that progress doesn't come at the expense of the the conditions of the current and the next generations and that's what it like and so so we haven't compromised on the long term vision i still want to be able to work on spacecraft that can go to deep space that can look after solar system exploration so it's a very similar thing to to uh, the spacex goal right they're starting with uh, rockets that they will sell on earth and they're using it to deploy satellites in earth orbit and eventually that technological progress now you know 15 years after they started or 20 years after they started has led to a point where they're building the starship for for mars and and similarly in our case given that unlike some people we didn't have access to millions or billions of dollars we had to start somewhere so um where there is business you need to be able to first generate cash flow that can help you be sustainable and then on on top of that you can always continue to push your boundaries and that was a similar plan with us we said you know the, the earth requires space data in the first place and there's a lot of untapped potential there so i still get to work on something that's my love which is space and at the same time it's helping create some kind of a positive impact great while we get that foundation set up maybe in the future we look at sending these out into deep space but that will require that will require the ecosystem to be set up that will require collaborations with space agencies because we are not at a position where private agencies can do it on their own so that's the that's the trade off yeah for enough you're building a company for the future 
Um, I'll get to Pixel in a bit, but I was curious because, you know, you're based in India, but you're also having offices in the USA, of course, and I'm from India as well. How was it starting a company in India initially, the, the initial days? Um, one, wasn't it too crazy because the, I mean, it started to hit a little bit, but then, you know, in the US, it's been going on for 10 years, more than 10 years, uh, the so-called new space era. And in India, feels like it's only a couple of years old maybe just around covid is when we started talking about it but then wasn't it wasn't that the time you started so weren't people thinking you were crazy and you know talk about how you managed to kind of put things together and make it a serious thing and get your first investment yeah yeah no i think the, the first phase of space startups actually came up in 2013 uh, there were two or three of them and um, you know one of them went into hiatus and uh, the other ones didn't really sort of take off um, so it, it did start uh, almost a decade ago in 2013 and then it didn't really work out then because it was probably way too early in the sense that the capital wasn't available. Now, uh, when we started in, in 2019, there were about three or four companies that were already at it, a couple of uh, rocket companies and a couple of uh, other satellite or hardware companies building thrusters and whatnot. So we were, we were probably the fifth serious new space company to actually start off in 2019. Now there are probably 10 or 15 um, some of whom are in the hardware stage, some of whom are still in the design stage. But I think the, the major things that led to the resurgence in 2019, 2018, 19, 20 during COVID is probably the availability of capital that ended up increasing in India as a whole. There were a lot of success stories in two sense. One was software startup success stories, whether that was the ride-hailing apps or whether that was e-commerce apps, people could see that there was money that was being made by these companies. So more and more foreign investments started coming into India. So okay. there was a larger pool of capital, which meant that people were more flexible in taking risks for something like space. And the other, other, other thing that was, uh, I think, instrumental was looking at success stories outside of India, whether that was, and that was specifically in the US. SpaceX had really become almost a household name by that point in time. You had the likes of Blue Origin and Jeff Bezos sort of, you know, doing a whole bunch of uh, announcements on, on what their longer term plans were. Planet or a um, bunch of others essentially came in and said, you know, here's new space companies that are actually doing it good. You know, the, the money that's been invested has, has gotten somewhere and they haven't really failed like you would have expected a space company to fail. Those two, I think, led to a point where investors were more like, you know what, let's at least in the early stages for the pre-seed or seed stage, we'll put in some money, see what comes out of it because that abundance of capital was there. And success stories outside of India made it seem like India has a rich heritage in space for the past six, seven decades through ISRO. Why can't uh, private companies also sort of come up and do that? So when we started, it was still very, very early stages. Um, we've always been one step beyond when capital sort of became relatively easier, right? When we raised our, our Series A, the seed had become easier. When we raised our seed, the pre-seed had become easier. Um, but at each, uh, when we initially started, people were skeptical. Uh, everyone was very interested in what we were doing. They thought that there could be a potential, but one, investing in, in a hardware company itself was tough. And on top of that, you add space to the hardware and then it becomes an entirely different level of risk. Anyhow, I think the early the early people that were faithful, all you need is a small group of individuals to get started. And thankfully, they were there. Um, now, now there's a decent availability of pre-seed and seed capital, thankfully. So that way, companies don't really have to wind up before they even get to a prototype level. Uh, and that's a major difference from how we see it in the US. We, we were part of the Techstars Accelerator in 2019 in the first year. And we saw that out of the 10 companies that were part of the cohort, the seven were in the US, US domiciled, and they had access to 
between 1 and 2 million and even higher and in non dilutive grant funding that you don't have almost anywhere in the globe and that's a big big disparity so we still have some ways to go but it's it's kicking off yeah yeah that's uh, it's good to see it kicking off because you know you you really need all these um companies at least attempting to solve different things um cool let's get to pixel then um you know you you kind of started with the elevator pitch of pixel and i wanted to ask you in terms of you know in a way differently what is pixel bringing to the table today that's not available whether it's in you know you can get to details of resolution or you know the the bands that you offer to you know other use cases that you might support so feel free to you know talk about what you're building yeah yeah sure so i think um, we looked at it this way there are three resolutions you talk about with electroptical data spatial temporal and spectral spatial resolution was solved uh, quite a few years ago with the likes of magsar and digital globe looking at you know sub meter 30 cm to 50 cm data planet came in uh, last decade and uh, solved the temporal resolution problem where they you know got to almost daily revisit anywhere on the globe but the gap that still existed in the earth observation ecosystem was the availability of high spectral resolution data now there were a few demo missions that were sent up by space agencies sure nasa had the hyperion sensor in their eo1 satellite or italy was launching its prisma satellite but these were very limited in number and one the resolutions weren't good enough for um, for commercial use cases although they were good for at least showing it as a concept and two um they didn't have the requisite revisit to be able to actually make commercial sense so what was good was in the last decade we have seen these satellites actually prove that hyperspectral as a concept from space is viable but we were plagued with the availability of high spectral resolution data now just taking a step back here what that means is the amount of wavelengths you're getting information from you're going from one in your panchromatic bands which is your ultra high resolution to about three in your rgb sensors to what you get between 8 to 13 in the multispectral range whether you're looking at landsat or sentinel um and that's the best that's been existed uh, you need to get it to a point where you have hundreds of these wavelengths now not all of these hundred will be useful for every use case it depends on how you choose out of those hundred that will give you the additional detail for example methane is visible at 1600 nanometers but also around between 2000 to 2400 where there's another absorption uh, peak um and then you have other greenhouse gases apart from methane as well so we have to do all of that with a one time satellite is is where you require high spectral resolution which is where hyperspectral imagery came in it was proven out as a concept as i said thanks to nasa and esa and isro um but when we talk to the customers we realize that they need better resolution you need to get down to at least 10 meters on a minimum and ideally better than 10 meters down to 5 meters and they wanted it very frequently they didn't want it every 21 days or every 2 months like was the case with one satellite up there they wanted to be able to get it at least on a weekly basis and eventually on a biweekly basis which meant that the number of satellites and the revisit had to go up and and that's where we focused we said let's build hyperspectral cameras and 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 therefore this hyperspectral satellites but at the same time without compromising on the quality of these bands we will get it down to a 5 meter resolution and that's where the challenge has uh, um been predominantly because getting to a 30 meter resolution of hyperspectral is is comparatively not that tough but then each uh, resolution that you shave off from there it gets bigger and bigger and tougher and tougher so that's where we decided 5 meter 300 band hyperspectral imagery is what we will provide and the constellation is sort of necessary because in some cases the use cases do require weekly or uh, twice a week coverage um at the minimum 
which means we need to have a daily revisit uh, to be able to account with buffers for, for that thing. So that's what, how we are going at it. A combination of high temporal and high spectral resolutions. We are not going to be competing with the high spatial resolution ones. Like it's, it's going to be a very uh, complementary data set. In fact, we are talking to a lot of these same companies uh, to see where you know data can be used together because we don't really compete with the same kinds of use cases. Yeah, it's good. It's glad I'm glad you're mentioning that because I think it's high time we move away from the data silos in the earth observation industry, right? Like this is SAR versus hyperspectral versus multispectral versus the others. You know, as a customer, it kind of you know I've written about it that they don't care. It it kind of goes together and they just expect it to work. They don't um, you know they would feel cheated if if you tell Oh, you know, you can't really see that because, you know, it's only multispectral and it has only eight bands. Or in your case, you say, oh, you can't really zoom in uh, because, you know, we can't do that. So you kind of need to go go to market in tandem. So I'm glad you're mentioning that. Um, so I'm curious, are there use cases, markets that you're focusing on? Because there are a few hyperspectral companies out there that have verticalized, as I call it. Um, focusing on specific markets, uh, have you made that choice, or are you are you pretty horizontal in terms of you know the breadth of markets that you cover? Yeah, we are fairly horizontal, so it's a very conscious decision that we don't want to verticalize too deeply in any one particular sector. I think the beauty of the Earth observation ecosystem in the past few years has been the proliferation of the number of companies trying to get the use cases. Different geographies, different soil types, different uh, atmospheres will lead to a different kinds of analysis. So we can't possibly do all those kinds of customizations everywhere if you want to look at it from a scalable perspective. I think it's better for the earth observation industry if the data is, is made easily available for analysis and there's a, a lot many more of these end user analytics companies that are then focusing on their niches. That way everyone sort of wins. You have, you have the ecosystem that's growing, you have the customers actually have dedicated companies working on those use cases for them and then they are verticalizing it. So I'll give you an example, right? First and foremost, we want to ensure that our hyperspectral data set is good quality and is easily available either through you know APIs or FTPs or through, through the cloud. Um, we want to ensure that data delivery and obtaining the data through existing workflows shouldn't be an issue. That's our first and foremost priority through our platform or through the backend itself. So that's that's first and foremost. It's, it's the data. Our product is the hyperspectral data cube and that applies across different industries. It's, it's, it's different industries and there's differences, but in the end, the product, the underlying product is the same. You don't really have to change anything there. It's how you extract those bands that change. We're going one step beyond that to be able to say, you know what, we will build the infrastructure and the tools to make it easy for anyone to get to a point where they can run their own models. Uh, for example, we won't do yield prediction, for example, right? It doesn't make sense for us to look at rainfall data, soil data, growth data, which differs from region to region. There are companies that are doing that and do it much better. What we want to enable for them is, here's the data. You want to clean up the data, correct the data, we will do it for you. You can do it on the platform. You want to be able to extract certain indices that you can directly get in there. They don't have to worry about how I'm extracting information from this image. They have to worry about that information then falling into their larger model. So we are not an end user analytics company, but we go one step below the providing of the imagery itself, trying to tie it as a whole and making it easy for these users. So um, yeah, we, we, we are not and will not verticalize. Um, we will work with different uh, companies in different sectors to ensure that it's easy for them to do it. Yeah, essentially, you know, you want to provide what is called analysis-ready data these days. Analysis-ready data, but also some level of basic analysis on top of that that's only limited to our data uh, so that, you know, sure. they don't spend days working on some sort of an ML model that can do land use, land cover classification, which is a solved problem, right? So that is easy. Right? We are not doing anything groundbreaking, but it becomes a very 
easy end-to-end -end workflow on on one place and then they take that and then run with it but yeah analytics data plus a little bit more fair enough here's a question i've been thinking about it for a while and i was chatting about it with someone recently how easy it is to use hyperspectral data because we were having a chat about if is it sour or is it hyperspectral which is the hardest to start using um i'm asking because because obviously you probably would have seen it or you would have worked with you know other types of hyperspectral data but, uh, i'm curious to understand like how easy it is to work with it doesn't seem like it's super easy because it's not intuitive i would say compared to sar data it is relatively easier i won't say it's easy but it's relatively easier and the reason i say that is because there's not a big jump from working with 10 bands to 300 bands given the right infrastructure you just need to be able to wait to man, you know man, man, to be able to manipulate those or maneuver those compared to synthetic aperture radar data which is an entirely different way of analyzing that right so i would say just looking at that it's it's not as new for people as sar data would be uh, which would probably require a little bit more education but yes it's still not as easy as multispectral because you are now dealing with hundreds of bands you have unique problems that come in with these bands uh, atmospheric correction becomes even more of an issue compared to multispectral um, so of course there are certain softwares like nv that customers are continuing to use which is which is why it's important that our platform also makes it easy now one of the things on our platform is the customers don't need to use all of the 300 bands that we provide. They can decide that, you know, we have been using Sentinel data and Sentinel has these specific 13 bands out of which we use, say, 8 bands. They can select exactly those center frequencies from our 300 bands. So they can, like, they don't even have to change their workflow. And gradually they can then increase from that 8 to maybe 30 that are relevant to them or 30 to 60 depending on what is relevant. So how we are doing it is we are creating band sets that are relevant to different industries. Out of the 300 bands, not all of them will be relevant for ag. So there will be an agricultural band set that will have, say, about 50 non-recurring, um, uh, non, uh, uh, essentially 60 bands that are not repeating and will be able to give you all you need for ag. And then oil and gas will be something else, greenhouse gases will be something else. So these are these band sets that will be there. Now to be able to then select that and input into their workflows, yes, some level of... Uh, Education will be required for the larger use cases, but that's what we hope our platform will solve. We are not just going to be like, here, here's the data. You then figure out whether you want to use NV or RGS or you want to do it on your own. If you don't have anything to do, here's our platform that just makes it as easy as a one click. So, I mean, I'm not sure if that is the answer because, you know, we still have to test it out in the next years, but that's, that's our approach. It's still comparatively difficult, but I, I might be biased, but it's not as uh, difficult mm -hmm. as that. But do you think anyone who's starting to work with your data set, if they are not a remote sensing scientist or probably know the basics, but you know they don't have a PhD, they can they still should be able to use your data, right? That's that's the end goal. Not everybody needs to have a PhD. Correct, correct. For basic levels of analysis, yes. Like for, as I said, for yield prediction, no, there won't be like a one-click thing that you can do because it changes sure. depending on geography. But if you're looking at uh, say the, the chlorophyll index or the leaf area index or the NDVI uh, for ag or land use land cover for general use cases, all of those can be done with one click for even a non-technical, non-data science, non-remote sensing scientist person. So all of those should be easier. For example, let, let's take a concrete example. Say it's a it's an oil and gas company that has these pipelines that they want us to monitor and they want just want to do, they just want to get an alert when there's a leak happening of methane. Now we know exactly what methane looks like in the spectral signature, um, so we can set up a workflow that is, you know, this data, this area, this frequently will give an alert to this email when there is a leak beyond a certain quantity, whenever that spectral signature is, is pattern matched to the backend. Things like those that we will definitely enable, so yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's the plan.
Sounds good, yeah. But you know, going back to what you were saying, you're not going to go and send the alert yourself. You're going to enable the company that is building the alert software to to let them do it as easily as they can with your Correct. like your product, right? Yeah. Because yeah. you're not going to go and develop the infrastructure that is going to send the alert. Cool. So let's talk about your milestones. Have you launched a satellite yet? We have launched two. <laughs> we have launched two. There are two demo satellites in space. The first one was a 30 meter hyperspectral camera, so the exact yeah. same as the other ones that that went uh, that have gone up before, but a very different way of doing that. Much smaller satellite. So instead of a 300 kg satellite that was doing 30, we were able to do 30 with a with a 10 kg satellite. Then earlier this year in April, we launched a 10 meter hyperspectral satellite. Now the 10 meter makes it essentially the highest resolution hyperspectral satellite commercially launched. Yeah. Um, the closest is is the Chinese hyperspectral constellation, the OHB satellites from Zuhai Orbita. The difference is they can only do 30 bands at a time, whereas we can do you know 150 um, in our camera. So that's that makes it the highest resolution hyperspectral commercial satellite ever launched to date. And we will be doing five meters next year. But as of now, we have these two: a 30 meter and a mm -hmm. 10 meter version. There's actually one more that will launch this year, hopefully this month, hopefully um, oh, yeah. with with ISRO that will also be 10 meters. So three demos by the end of this year, but two of them have already launched. Oh, that's amazing. So then the operational ones, the, the five meter, 300 bands is what you expect to start next year. Are there people absolutely, you know, waiting for those 300 bands to be available at five meters? Can you talk about like maybe you don't have to of course talk about their names but then what are the use cases because i'm really curious like you mentioned it's not been available before and of course the the ones who are you know what i call the early adopters they are going to be very very excited of course you know for the majority you probably need to do their education and you know build out your platform etc but then what are the use cases that the early adopters are like super excited about and waiting about uh, waiting for your data sets maybe they've already started using the data from um, demo missions yeah, yeah. So we had an early adopter program where we had a customer sign on for um, some early discounts if they signed on before the satellites went up, right? Of course, they're, take, they're taking some risk by signing on with us now, uh, but in, in return, they obviously get discounts for um, for a significant amount of time, which actually makes it worthwhile for them for the for the risk. So we we have. Uh, close to 60 customers right now that are waiting for this data from the satellites that will go up next year because that's when the capacity actually gets a boost, right? We need to be able to serve these and we need to serve these at a weekly basis. So these six satellites will be able to do every two-day revisit uh, and that's the good enough for us to start commercial operations at 5 meters, 300 bands. So yes, there's a significant amount of these customers from the agricultural domain, from the environment domain and from the oil and gas and mining domains that have signed on with us already. Out of which we are already working with about six of those at a time right now with the demo satellites. And the reason why I mentioned six specifically is because we are very limited with the capacity we have. The since these are demo satellites, the radios weren't really as powerful as we wanted them to be. So we can't really beam down as many images as we want to. So we are limited in how much we can beam down. But obviously that's being solved with the next version. But the good thing is we are fully, fully booked out on that capacity with the the six pilots that we are running from satellites in space right now. This includes, you know, governments to ag companies to oil and gas companies right now. So the, the demand has been there. I think when we like we, we weren't one of those folks that said we will build and they will come. Um, probably would have still done that uh, given the love for space. But what we did before we started manufacturing is we actually talked to some of these clients who have now signed on whether they would actually pay for hyperspectral, whether they would pay a premium, whether it's actually required or it's just a it's just a good vanity to have. 
uh, and and once we knew that yes there's actually at least these small group of customers that really really want this um, we knew we had something on our hands with hyperspectral so we said we'll do this and that has continued with us so thankfully there's continues to be strong commercial demand um, much more than we can cater to at this point so they're eagerly waiting for those six satellites to, to definitely go up yeah that's a good problem to have uh well maybe you know you still need to kind of keep them waiting and hope the launch works out and they'll get yeah. their data set but it's a good problem to have yeah. you know more than the other parts of the earth observation industry where you know there is still the build it they'll come um mentality so you're probably in a good spot uh are you doing continuous monitoring or is it uh tasking based it's neither uh, and it's both uh, and I'll tell you how, what that is. Uh, we can't do global covering every global monitoring every day because the amount of data with hyperspectral is just insane. Um, we can't beam down that much even with the most powerful radios we have today. So what we do is this. We recognize that there are certain areas that need to be continuously monitored regardless of anything else, regardless of there being customers or not. The Amazon rainforest or the corn belt or the wheat belt depending on sort of where you are, right? Areas that a lot of folks have interest in that will need to be monitored to build up a historical repertoire of that region, we will monitor and we will have a decent number of these around the globe. So these will be under our monitoring program. The rest of the areas we won't, unless someone specifically tells us, in which case we will task for those. Um, so that's how we're going about it. It's a combination of both. Oh, it seems like it's, it's a pretty smart approach as a, as a hybrid one, uh, simply because, you know, that's kind of how your use cases require it. You know, you're not just taking a decision because based on what the technology allows you to do. Well, the technology kind of allows you to, you know, go only with the tasking only approach, but you still chose a hybrid um, strategy, which I think is, is pretty cool. Uh, you were we were talking about customers and i wanted to talk about one customer i don't know if you have you know put on the names of others i think there was only one uh, that i remember rio tinto i guess the brazilian yeah. mining company yeah. if i'm not mistaken and actually i was very not surprised in a way but i was glad that there was a company from let's say a non-traditional sector that happened to be one of your early customers because mining is an industry that you know obviously has a lot of applications of uh, earth observation data different types of sensors and and how did that happen and you know if you can talk about uh, specifically mining in general um, as as a as a market for for your company sure sure i think we just put up the the use cases for mining on our website and rio tinto actually reached out to us uh, because they were looking at a hyperspectral solution so it wasn't us forcing them to be able to hey you need to sign on because you need this it was actually them coming and saying hey we have been testing out hyperspectral drone imagery and aerial imagery We've been working with existing sources of satellite data for exploration, for monitoring. Now, we, from our own experiments with aerial and drone collections of hyperspectral, we know that hyperspectral is what we need to add to our repertoire, So, and, and you are doing this. So they actually talked to, I think, almost all the others that are attempting to do hyperspectral, but the reason why we were able to get them as an early adopter and we are continuing to work with them, get their inputs on what's actually required is, is because of our 5 meter resolution and uh, and the fact that we are doing visible near infrared and shortwave infrared with our constellation. So that range and the resolution of 5 meters is what really, I think, sold them on the fact that it's possible to do it from space because they can do it in, in drones or uh, through airplanes in limited areas. But since they are spread across the globe, you need you need it from space to be able to actually cover it from a cost effective um, sense. So the use cases are threefold. Um, but it's predominantly towards helping them become more sustainable as, as a company. And that's something that they have put internal principles on. So that's threefold. One is reducing the footprint of their exploration area. They don't want to be going to areas where they might not find anything. So they want us to look at hyperspectral to see where there might be mineral compositions or um, secondary minerals that might indicate that there are other primary minerals that they are looking for. So that's one. 
helping them identify which areas to specifically focus on so that they don't um, end up deforesting or looking at other areas that don't really have something the second thing is monitoring of existing mines especially with regards to the tailing pond so when some when you're when you're mining all of the waste material is essentially stored in a tailing pond which if it tends to get breached or leaked tends to you know soil health issues or water health issues um depending on where where there are human settlements around so they want to be able to continuously monitor both old closed mines uh, and existing mines for tailing leakages both underground and above ground um and third is whenever there is a mining they need to be able to provide some level of environmental reporting to the government from a from a policy and regulatory standpoint and um they want to be able to have proof to say that hey this is actually what happened not not you don't need to fine us more than this or you don't need to fine us for this so we help them keep a track of the biodiversity impact on the forest or the soil or the vegetation around um if there's like you know tailing ponds and things like that so those are the three use cases specifically with rio tinto yeah it's uh, it's very exciting because you know obviously we've talked about it a lot as use cases but then to see happening uh, with a commercial company is actually pretty exciting um here's a hypothetical question i don't know if it has happened already has any customer approached you to say hey i want to have a satellite constellation i'm interested in your data set but i want to own the data so i want to launch me on satellite so if they were to come to you i don't know if this happened if if this is the use case um you know would you kind of offer satellites as a service like a few other companies do is that kind of something that you think about or do you think that won't be necessary because it seems like the kind of industries that you're targeting they're all used to owning their own assets and if this is an asset that they want to own uh is that is that an option is that something you're considering because you know obviously satellogic does that as a constellation as a service it's called iside as that as just selling satellites what's what's your you know take on this go to market approach yeah so i think it's something that we look at as an additional not specifically our primary core business right there's two two things here now it, it's a different conversation for us with the government versus it's a different conversation for us with a private entity right we have had multiple private entities actually come to us and we have given them cost indications of how much it would be for them to operate their own constellation and then they almost inevitably say yeah this doesn't make sense we'll just take it from you because the way the reason it works commercially is one time investment cost gives you returns in the same industry from multiple customers and then multiple industries so um, you don't get that if you're investing the same amount of capital but you're using it only for one or two use cases for that specific company um, so private companies almost inevitably say you know we i don't think it makes sense we'll just take the data from you um, governments do sovereign nations definitely do have uh, reasons as to why they want to be able to own the assets themselves and and they have the cap- the the capital to also be able to pull it off right um so th- those are conversations that we are having and we will we will look at that if that makes sense um but we won't sell our satellites to any other private entity or uh, even if they do come it doesn't i don't think it makes sense for them when they look at the cost to do that so that's the the bifurcation governments yes i think they have the interest uh, and we'll probably do it as well if it comes to that on the private side mm, i don't think it makes sense fair enough yeah i think the economics of space there's not a lot there just yet uh but w- what does your upstream value chain look like are you vertically integrated are you partnering with someone else or are you kind of using the space as a service solutions how do you how are you launching your satellites so we have our own facility where we integrate the satellites so in the, in the in the entire workflow here we design the satellites ourselves which means the cameras like we we need to ensure that we have the ip for how the satellite looks like and the camera looks like because that's the core so we designed the cameras the optics and uh, the satellite and how that will look like 
Uh, the satellite is a combination of some custom developed products and some most of the shelf products. We don't need to reuse, do the wheel with solar panels or batteries or reaction wheels or star trackers, for example. So we just look at what's in the market, what makes best sense for us, but we decide how that goes together. And then the manufacturing of these things happens across the globe um, in Europe, North America, in South Africa, in India. And all of them eventually then come to our facility uh, where we integrate it as a team, we test it out and then we operate it ourselves. So kind of vertically integrated, but not all of the components we do it ourselves. Yeah, even here, it's a kind of a hybrid approach. Cool. One last thing about um, your company, and then I want to get to your thoughts on the state of the industry today. So recently, I think there was uh, the investment from Accenture, um, again, which was, for me, it was not a surprise because I have been writing about it that, you know, it's inevitable that one of those big consulting companies take interest in this new type of data because, you know, I've always thought about it as just another type of data that happens to come from space, but you still make software with it. So... Uh, so it was not surprising, but how did that happen? And you know, talk about uh, talk about the Accenture investment and what this means for you, but also for the industry. Yeah, no, I think it's it's definitely a good thing. So um, that that's a that's a sense of the bigger change that's happening across the world, where more and more traditional industries that haven't looked at Earth observation data are now realizing that space data just happens to be yes another data coming from somewhere, but it's also important to include in in a multitude of different regions. So. Accenture specifically was looking at, uh, you know, space solutions for their own clients that they work with across the globe. And uh, they reached out saying, uh, you know, let's have a chat about, you know, what can be done here. And then those conversations then eventually led to that investment, uh, which is a good sense. I think it's a good validation for us as well that a company that traditionally hasn't looked at space now thinks that space is, is a strategic interest for them because their clients are asking for this. So it, it doesn't necessarily come as something that they are thinking as a thesis. It actually flew, flowed down from the fact that their customers are asking for these solutions. They want to build it for them. And then they were talking to us about what these solutions could be, which led to a fact that hey you know it actually makes sense to have a strategic investment here and it made sense for us also because one it's it's a good thing for the industry that more and more folks outside of the traditional eu industry ecosystem coming in and it also helps us get a much larger go-to-market network like when we are when we are selling we traditionally tend to stick to the folks that we know will use this data but through accenture we get access to a whole lot of other data points that can help drive our decision making on how the tech needs to be and also that we can get this data out to more non-traditional customers that accenture will help us with because that brings credibility with uh, with that investment. So I think that's so that's that's how that came to be. No, hundred percent. I think it's a it's an important development, and I hope it leads to a state where you know we get a sense of more user requirements. Because obviously, you know, there's there's a limit to how many people you can speak to uh, in terms of understanding what their requirements are. And you know, Accenture being Accenture, they've probably seen different industries, different uh, customers, different use cases, and you know, it can impact your go to market as well, right? Like maybe you know, today you were saying that you need to build this analysis ready data slash you know some kind of tools on top of your data sets but maybe you'll learn uh, you know one industry will require a little bit more one industry is happy to just purchase the data and you know they can put together a remote sensing team and you know do it themselves so those are all like inputs that's going to come because you know when i say it today i say it based on assumptions but then accenture is probably going to be real data sets because they've they have all these customers Cool, makes sense. Uh, let's talk about the state of the industry today. Uh, I think we touched on, you know, one one part, uh, whether we need more data companies. Uh, I asked a few people on the podcast and had some surprising answers. But what's what's your take on it? Uh, obviously, you're building hyperspectral data set, but then in general, in Earth observation, do we need more data companies, or do we need 
uh, more companies on the other end of the value chain because I published, you know, uh, the state of the year today and a lot of people remarked that, oh, it's, you know, kind of heavy on one side and not very heavy on the other side. So yeah. what's, what's your take on, uh, on, the, on the question? Oh, yeah, for sure. I agree that the skewing should be towards the downstream side. They need way more downstream companies than you need upstream companies because uh, as, as, as we touched upon this earlier, right, we think it's good for the ecosystem that the more folks are using it to create actual tangible use cases and, and the revenue starts to flow in, that's when the ecosystem starts to grow. Uh, regardless of the number of companies, if the revenue doesn't flow in, you're not really growing the, the market asset. So having, having way more downstream analytics companies is just generally good because no way a single company can verticalize every industry, every geography, and, and you will definitely need those. But the answer to whether we need more data companies is again twofold for me, yes and no. Yes, from a types of data perspective, like we, we started with panchromatic, we eventually moved on to multispectral, we now have synthetic aperture radar companies. Um, folks now are doing hyperspectral imaging uh, such as ourselves and, and a couple of others. We will need a few other kinds of data sets to, to add to that from space so we have a good overview of what's happening on the planet. Now that includes thermal infrared, that includes medium wave infrared, uh, that could include even uh, LIDAR down the line, right? So there definitely needs to be an additional kind of data set, so companies doing that and one company won't have the, the skill set to be able to do that. But beyond a certain point, having more data companies doing the exact same thing, absolutely not. I think uh, uh, every geography doesn't necessarily need a private Earth observation company. I think now there's it's it's a it's an allied world where countries are sharing this data, and uh, they, there won't be enough customers to buy the same kinds of data. Then you'll be competing on on the price. Now that's a good thing that the price comes down, but then that also has to be um, due to the fact that the satellite cost themselves is coming down, not because the competitors are driving that down, right? So I would say we don't need more multispectral satellite operators for sure. Um, we don't need uh, many more SAR operators. We don't need um, you know even five uh, or uh, eight hyperspectral companies. We probably need two or three kinds of companies doing the same thing because you know obviously having backups is good. It's not a zero sum game. But beyond a certain point, we don't need data companies. We are probably nearing that limit as to to where we will need to stop. Um, so yeah, the answer is yes. We need more kinds of data companies for different data sets. We don't need more data companies for the same kinds of data sets. And uh, another hypothetical question: Do you think there will be in the future, ten years out, one company that is completely well, horizontally integrated, by that I mean owning all types of sensors in, in one. Is that is that a scenario to, to expect? Because when I think about the future of EO, you know, that that's not something that I would want because, you know, one company then calls the shots of uh, every sensor. And, you know, we know what the implications of having a monopolistic world are from lessons in software. Uh, so yeah. I'm, I'm curious to hear your take on, you know, how do you see the future going? I think there'll definitely be consolidation for sure. Um, but it also depends on how the industry grows. I think and unlike in the case of, uh, like you just need to look at the communication satellites, right? You, there's a bunch of consolidation. There were a lot of refinancings, a lot of bankruptcies that sort of happened there. And eventually we ended up with probably three companies that were doing this on a, on a regular scare. Uh, scale the Leo Leo communication constellation, and now you have a couple of others that have come up in this, in the name of Starlink and and OneWeb. So um, we will similarly see consolidation happening. But yeah, I agree that one company having all of it um, doesn't make sense where they're calling the shots, which is why we definitely need at least two or three companies doing the same kind of imaging. So even though there might be consolidation, I think there will be at least three or four consolidated companies in total that are doing all different kinds of data because in the end you are selling to the same kinds of customers. There's, there's definitely differentiators here, like we, when we are selling hyperspectral data, the use cases will be different from, from panchromatic uh, to, to multispectral. 
but at, at a certain point in time there is still a large amount of overlap in that Venn diagram of folks that need this and that uh, and it makes sense for one company to do that whether that's just one company then that would be a bad situation but if that's three or four companies that are actually coming out to do that then that's good then you still have a healthy competition but you still have someone that's being able to to have a uniform way of providing this data even if that doesn't turn out to be the case i think that's good with more and more companies building their own on on businesses i would prefer it it go that way but uh, the way it is going uh, seems like it might get consolidated at least in a limited sense yeah i mean it's it it, it seems like it's inevitable and we'll probably head there uh, all right cool two questions that i want to ask now and i want you to be as controversial as you can be the first one <laughs> is um what's one problem in North observation that we are not talking about today that we we should be and you know we should be doing something about people people don't focus on the data quality enough um, uh, and uh, verticalization doesn't really work if you're looking at one industry only um, if you're a data company you need to ensure that the data is used to the maximum level possible if you're going to say i'm only building this only for this particular use case as i mentioned the economics don't tend to really work out your one-time capital investment needs to be amortized over multiple industries and multiple use cases and that doesn't turn out to be the case if that doesn't happen so i would say verticalization for data companies doesn't make sense uh, into one sector only if you're able to somehow do it in multiple sectors and become a behemoth maybe yeah but um, just going deep into one sector might not really be the the complete way for a data company again I'm, I'm, i might be wrong here and the second is many folks are putting up many of these satellites up there they're trying to say that we'll we'll get these cube set up it's very standardized but the issue with sticking to a standard satellite bus with earth observation is that it limits your data quality uh, you need to first decide how your quality needs to look like that decides your camera that decides your satellite bus i would say uh, what people don't focus on enough for the problem that people don't focus on is yes it's cube set and it's standardized great but is it really the ideal bus for you to actually put up the sensor up there because you know you are compromising on your data quality and camera quality by fitting it into this arbitrary um, standard that was set up so i would say that's that's one problem people should focus more on focus on your data quality and then your camera and then the satellite and not try and cram your camera into a designated standard bus fair enough yeah i think that's uh yeah, i think that's quite controversial i'll take that because you know obviously there's a lot of focus on you know our satellite is standardized or you know we are launching on a scoop set so i i definitely t- take that point and i don't think we talk about data quality enough at all because i've been interested in seeing if there is a, a an index somewhere of the amount of usable data that has been downlinked from space and yeah. i'm sure the percentages will baffle and kind of shock a lot of people the the amount of useful data that has been you know used to create applications uh but you know there has been so much capital that has been spent there's been so much downlink costs cloud costs you know if you put all of that together <laughs> the, yeah. the roi does not make uh, make a lot of sense so i hope to see some kind of index or develop it myself if i have access to that data but i don't think i'll have access to that level of data we'll see um the yeah. second one is what's your hot take on on the state of earth observation we're still in the early stages of earth observation so in the next 3 years to 5 years we'll actually see a lot of these companies petering out or dying out and either being consolidated with others or are completely dying out themselves very similar thing happened to so i i tend to read a whole bunch about the history of of space tech especially satellites you know the the story of uh, um you know orbital atk that were trying mm-hmm. to launch their own communication satellites and then the iridium story so there was a lot of optim op- there was a lot of uh, optimism with those satellite constellations then as well like we have with earth observation today but eventually a whole lot of them went bankrupt so when the when the buck comes to call when you're trying to generate revenue i think 
the the hot take is it seems very rosy today but in the mm-hmm. next 3 years to 5 years we'll actually see some of them not not make it um and uh, the, the market will then dictate who's who they're willing to pay the money to and who they are not willing to pay the money to fair enough makes sense cool uh last part of uh the episode i want to talk about space tech in india we touched on it earlier but i want to come back to it just to just to first ask about what's your what are your thoughts on just how earth observation data is being used today in india and what are your plans to kind of increase its uptake because obviously you know we have a ton of talent uh, we have you know an insane number of people who know how to work with data in india and you know yeah. mastering yeah. ai and ml and all that yeah. so how do we improve the uptake of eo in india um and and then we'll get to space in overall but first just specific to eo Yeah I think there's very few companies that are still doing remote sensing analytics that's sure was there a few years ago you have Kava Space you have Blue Sky now that have come up but you can still count them on the fingers of a single hand uh companies doing serious analytics today so that number needs to go up first and foremost but there's also a talent crunch from a perspective of someone who can directly come in and take that up right away um, of course we can come train people and there's definitely a lot of talent from that perspective um the idea is essentially that we need to take away the the fact that it's only nrsc the national remote sensing center that's been doing this and uh, providing it to government departments the government department need to be given the freedom to procure it freely from whoever is providing the best solutions whether that's ag whether that's mining whether that's anyone else forestry for that example for that matter um so i think one the, what we want to do personally for that is to be able to provide access to some level of discounted and free data to to academic and research institutions to say here's the data you know you as a phd student you as a graduate student undergraduate student work on this data come up with some sort of a thesis you know you do what you want to do and then one that will help with the increase in the level of talent that's ready to dive into this who've done this before and two hopefully that shows the the different users that there are use cases here um but first and foremost there needs to be an unlocking from a government perspective that should be free to put out these um tenders for procuring it from the private industry and need to be active about it when more and more governments do that in different states and in different geographies um the country is so big that there's potential for private companies to come up in each state in each different geography who are then focusing on those right for example we signed a contract with uh, with the government of telangana and mou with them to say we will monitor the the farm fields for you in the entire state um but we can't do everything from an analytic standpoint we can't change, see how soil health is changing from a on ground perspective so you still need we're working with the university there but what you need is a combination of these different um companies doing that so i would say that's that's our goal uh, it's still some ways away but with the with the right unlocking from a government and evangelizing um availability of grants and contract money we will see that opening up yeah no 100% because it's in your interest to have all of these companies available uh to to yeah. to work with all the data um yeah. and i don't think we touched on it what are you targeting the defense industry as well in india is that an area because there are some companies that don't go into that market for whatever reason but what what are your thoughts on the defense industry yeah so i think we have a very clear stance here anything that is, can be used for active uh, active defense purposes no but something that can help bring more transparency to the world yes uh, i'll give you an example right looking at the mobilization of the russian army at the ukraine border before gave people a very good idea of what was actually about to happen which is good for the globe as as a whole for humanity as a whole that there's more transparency and people can't be taken by surprise today which is which is great right or someone some some countries mining uranium um and and having a nuclear program that they have not told the world about now whether they whether they should do it or not is a different matter and I won't go into that but whether um it's happening um, that that something that should not be happening is is bringing more transparency absolutely i think that's an important part for us as a civilization but 
Um, we also had a request that came in from somewhere where a hyperspectral camera would be provided for uh, active target detection for missiles. Like these would be hosted on missiles, which can help identify targets to to hone in. Absolutely no, right? We don't want to be able to actually get into that. So we have very clear stance that whatever we do should either help with making the Earth a more sustainable place or a more transparent and safe place, which means we will work with these agencies that that are responsible. But anything that goes beyond the other side uh, uh, is a is a hard no for us. Fair enough, makes sense. Um, cool. So let's get to a couple of wrap up questions. What um, what worries you about the state of the space industry you know we talked about earth observation a lot if you were to you know take a step back and look at the space industry overall and we didn't get to talk about you know your interest in other parts of space maybe you can do a part two later but what are your uh, you know the thoughts on you know what worries you about the state of the space industry today because there's a lot going on you know across the value chain from you know starship that will probably hopefully launch sometime soon to on the other hand different types of communication satellites for broadband and weather and navigation and obviously you know it's a, it's an exciting time but is there something that worries you being such a big you know space <laughs> aficionado um so i think what prob- i mean it's not a big worry i mean I'm, I'm generally very optimistic that it's going in the right direction and i hope that it continues to do so but i think if there's is one worry it's that the there'll be some sort of a bubble pop and i don't mean that everyone will sort of fail there's definitely companies doing great and they'll continue to do great but in some cases, and I have seen certain very specific examples where money is being thrown at the problem, right? Um, without a credible backing of customers being there or without credible uh, technical milestones being achieved, you know, throwing hundreds of millions of dollars um, or in some cases, uh, spacking way too early just gives uh, a lot of capital to companies that might not have the strong foundations to actually take it off. And what that essentially then means is when when those companies end up um, eventually failing, the the capital draws back from the industry, and and that's something that should not happen because you know this, it's been growing for the last few years. Hopefully, it continues to grow, and probably you know companies will fail. Even good companies will fail because space is hard, and that's 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 not the issue here. But just throwing money blindly at a problem just because you know some some folks are well connected to some funds, and and that's where the money is coming from, sort of worries me a little. Um, but uh, not something that takes my sleep away. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, or probably the last this this is probably the last question so in in five years time where do you think pixel should be or you know what do you want pixel to be known for um, you know I think you talked about a lot of things about transparency about sustainability is that kind of what your your vision is is that what you tell your team yeah so I think there's two visions and in five years though we want to be known as the the health guard of the the planet so our our vision statement our goal statement is to build a health monitor for the planet regardless of what we do we want i want to ensure that everyone's keeping that goal in mind that the, the reason for sending all these costly satellites up there is is not just for the the fun that you have which is definitely fun but to be able to actually create positive impact one way or the other so to create a health monitor for the planet and thereby being known as the the health guard for the planet might be a good good start in five years and starting to look at uh, you know space beyond the lower orbit as well but what do we want to be known as um, health guard for the planet. I just thought of that here, so maybe that's something I can continue to use. <laughs> Brilliant, sounds good. Uh, anything else we missed, Aves, before we close? No, I think we covered quite a bit, Irvin. Thanks so much for having me. This has been fun, always fun talking about the industry in general and what we're doing. So thank you, nothing else from my side. Brilliant, thanks, Aves. Thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, this is Arvind again. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the Tyrawatt Space Podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Also feel free to sign up for my newsletter, Terrawatch on Substack. 
that is terrorwatch.substack.com, where I attempt to decode the recent developments in space tech and its impact on Earth. Thanks again and hope to see you for the next episode.